thank you for joining us for On Air with UVA. I'm Elizabeth Muse, Senior Director of Global Engagement and UVA Clubs in the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. The UVA Clubs program is very pleased to bring you Greg Fairchild from the Darden School of Business. Without further ado, and with our thanks to him for making time for this call today, here's Greg Fairchild. Well, hello there. Um, listen, I want to thank all of you for taking time out of what is one of the more uncertain periods that I can recall to come together. You know, it's been a real occasion for really thinking about where connections matter, and I think the shared experience of the university, the desire for ways that we talk and learn from each other is unique, and it's a tie that we all have. I want to thank you for joining me. I'm coming to you live from my basement in Charlottesville. I'm doing that because uh, my children have each camped out in various parts of our home. Uh, my 17-year-old is in high school classes. I have two older kids who are also in classes. Everybody has a bedroom. Everybody's in separate spaces, and we're all continuously talking to people around the country and, uh, and, uh, and in our educational aspects. So I want to thank all of you for joining me. Um, the topic is not one that um, I would have guessed we'd be talking about. The times that we're in, the uncertainties that face us, and how we might uh, think about resilience in a time like this. Now, it turns out, for some of you, uh, this is a return for me. I, I have been very interested in the questions of how businesses operate in times that are challenging. So it uh, turns out during the last recession, I actually had a program that we launched here at the University of Virginia called the Taylor Murphy Resilience Awards. And these were awards that we conceived of because there was so much discourse about it being a time period where businesses around the country were beginning to find that uh, there were discussions about whether these businesses would survive. And by businesses, I'm specifically talking in this instance not about the too big to fail, but let's call them uh, the too small to forget, the businesses on main streets across the country. And we created this program really to ask the question, at a time like that, which businesses in those communities were actually continuing to thrive? In other words, rather than take the view that um, there's going to be carnage everywhere, where might we find some examples of businesses that bend but don't break? Businesses that blow with the wind but actually continue to and in that work, we spent a good bit of time in some of the lower-income, hard-hit portions of the state of Virginia, rural places, uh, also urban places, the places away from many of the environs many of us at the University of Virginia happened to spend our time. And I'll tell you that um, we came away in that moment with some great stories that were a part of this program called the Resilience Awards, but we also came away with some great learnings about what worked and what didn't. And I'll talk a little bit about those in just a minute. 
I want to spend just a few minutes framing where we are. I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between risk and the difference between uncertainty. Now, for some of you on uh, this moment, you're old enough to remember a movie that came out in the summer of 1975, and it changed the nature of film going. That movie was Jaws, and it was by Steven Spielberg. And I'm going to refer to Jaws a few times today simply because it has such cultural resonance, but because there's some interesting things that come out of this movie that relate to our present moment. So we learned a few hours ago that our jobless claims um, are at 22 million people have filed for unemployment in the last four weeks. This comes on the back of a period where we were touting um, things that we hardly ever see, low unemployment and low inflation. Um, and yet, that's where we were, and that is where we are now. We're also in a moment where our Congress and our president um, have been balkanized in efforts to get things done. In fact, if anything, we would mark the present seasons as been one where the question wasn't what we agreed on, it was what we fought about. In unprecedented times, the federal government came together and created a new stimulus program. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. What's remarkable about it is the pace at which it came forward and uh, the breadth that has been uh, put into effort to try to help with uh, market demand, but also to help with market supply. Um, I'll also say uh, this is where the first piece of the notion of JAWS comes in. You know, the movie was powerful because we knew that something was wrong, but we didn't really know what was wrong. Spielberg let us know there was something in the water, but we couldn't exactly see it. We didn't exactly know what it was, um, particularly at the beginning of the movie. And I feel that way so much right now as I come to you from my basement. I feel like we're in a moment where in the prior recession, we didn't know exactly what would happen, but we did have a good sense. Hey, I think someone's phone may be on. I'm not too sure in picking up your audio. Um, in the present moment, um, we are in a different place than we were years ago. In, in, in the last recession, we knew that part of what we were dealing with was a web of lending assets that had been overvalued and a cascade across those lending assets. And we knew that the challenge was particularly going to be in the underlying valuations in our financial system. This one is a bit different in that we're dealing with an unseen, unmeasured challenge, not whether it's receding or increasing and how to get our hands around it. This, in some ways, is like the what we eventually learn. You know that something's out there, and this then makes what we call an uncertainty. For those of us on the call that are from business, you know that uncertainty is one of the, the worst things you can have because you're not sure on 
how to measure the risk or the challenge that you face. It's, it's harder to deal with than risk. Risk is something we can measure. We know that if we flip a coin 50 times, 25 times on average, it'll come back heads. When we're dealing with uncertainty, we really don't have a way of knowing what we're dealing with. And so the first way I, I'd say is, in that film, you always knew the shark was there, but you didn't know and you didn't even see the shark until very late in the movie. So one of the things we're getting through as a society and business is uncertainty. We're not sure when we're going to go back to work and how we're going to go back to work, and that makes this different. Next, I think that um, we are beginning to learn some things that are beginning to give us a better sense of what we're dealing with. Many of you on the call will know uh, the U.S. economy, our GDP, is primarily driven by two sectors. The service sector and the retail sector make up about two-thirds of the way we grow our economy. Well, we know that when people are on orders that cause them to stay at home, we can still move business forward. I'm sure many of us uh, on this call are. But the ability of an economy based on consumption to then turn itself uh, after consumption has been cut off is, in fact, a really big question. We know that um, retail sales are down lower than we can imagine them being in recent history. We know that the stimulus is meant to put some money in people's pockets, which hopefully will continue to prime them to spend. But we also don't know where and how they will spend. So, again, we're getting a more of a sense of what we're dealing with. But at the same time, uh, there's still much we don't know and much we will have to begin thinking about as business leaders. Um, I also want to make sure that we talk about the tension around um, the feeling that we want to move forward and the corresponding worry that are we moving forward in the right way? Are we taking unnecessary exposure, in this case, I mean both business exposure and actually uh, viral uh, exposure, are we taking exposures that we probably shouldn't? And so those questions are all being worked out. I've been positively amazed at, again, the way our government has come together to agree that we need to do something and do it quickly with what I would say is a modicum of political fractiousness, given what we were dealing with before. I've been amazed at uh, the way our institutions, universities coming together, in my case, uh, to quickly turn on the spigot for education in a new way. I had taught online a little bit, but to know that I would be teaching a 60-person elective and that I would be doing so never having seen, touched, look my students in the eye uh, was something I would never have told you I would do, and we are doing it. I work with some businesses who are also finding new ways to operate in very, very short order, and they're open to the experimentation that goes along with that. So I want to say a little bit about um, how dealing with that uncertainty Dealing with the notion that we're dealing with a danger that we can't always see 
but recognizing that we want to open the beaches back up, again, to reference the movie, but not knowing how ready we are to open the beaches up is the other thing we're dealing with. Some may say it appears we need a bigger boat. We know that the stimulus package, uh, particularly for small businesses, uh, was overwhelmed with requests, both in the ability to process those requests and the dollars necessary to support the businesses. The small businesses, which, by the way, um, make up the bulk of the employees in the United States. Trivia question for any of you on the phone. You know, businesses with fewer than 50 employees employ just about half of all employees in the United States. So 50 is, in fact, the inflection point at which you get to what we could call a small business versus a large business. So I want to take the remainder of time, and then, and then I want to get into it with you, and I hope you have questions. I know I've seen some of them in uh, the online call. I see a lot of old friends and old names, and I see some new names. I want to hear from you in just a few minutes, but what I'd love to do is say a little bit about some other things that I've been thinking. First of all, back to those learnings from the Resilience Awards, I would say when we looked at these questions during the last recession, one of the first things we realized is that ways to connect to the community in which a business operates becomes so important. And what do I mean by that? I certainly mean the physical community, and I mean ways that um, the business based in the state of Virginia, the business based in a city like Danville, the business based in a major metropolitan area ties to the neighborhoods or the specific set of customers it works with. And what do I mean by that? I mean everything from reminding people of the presence of a business in the community in which they operate. So remembering that this is a community that supports uh, the Girl Scouts and the Little League. But it also means taking time during this period where we're also separate to literally reach out and connect. And that was something we saw years ago. When people become uncertain, we pull back. And the businesses that use that occasion to say, I'm here and I'm here for you, we found we're able to make this turn far stronger. The other things that I would say uh, we took away from the last uh, recession were being prepared in an offense way and a defense way. And if you'll forgive the analogy, by offense we mean the ability to go out to re-engage customers flowing in. But I also want to make sure we talk about defense. We found that businesses that had managed to have a stock, a well, a base of savings were in a better place, all things being equal. But we also found that this became a key time for businesses to be thoughtful about their marshalling and shepherding of their resources. And that includes everything from revisiting their budgets to making sure that they were being better about their accounts receivable or their accounts payable on the one hand. But also it meant connecting to suppliers who are in it with you. If you happen to be a company that makes engine parts and you happen to be getting some of your supplies from someone who provides you 
um, molds, and this is an example we had years ago, uh, that are used in the parts that you make, that supplier understanding that without you, we both can't continue became a big part of what made some organizations survive and others didn't. Again, that understanding of the way the two businesses are, in fact, integrated and connected. The third thing I'll mention is that um, there seemed to be, in the prior period, a real understanding that perhaps less is more. And by less is more, I could mean restaurant owners that reconsidered the breadth of their menus and who sat down and said, let's really look at how many of this item, of each item, let's take the receipts and look at the sales of each item. And they were many learned that um, they had a 80-20 problem or an 80-20 advantage. 80% of the revenues were coming from a relatively small number of units. And they had not really thought about that before. We also found that people learned that there were new ways of operating and working in which um, people could be cross-trained to do more than the singular job they were doing. And finally, one of the things we saw, and it's an encouragement I would make again, we saw businesses that recognized that the business across the way that was their competitor could actually be their partner. And so the notion that um, we could always imagine the the classic is the two gas stations that are across the street from each other, and they keep lowering price and driving each other insane. But imagine there were these two businesses across the street from each other, and they recognized that much of their back office and their operations were actually the same, and that in a combined way, they could touch the same number of consumers or even more consumers with a streamlined set of operations where they shared the cost. And so the notion of competing in a time of stress in a way that might make you go under relative to cooperating in a time of stress, which could strengthen both of you in the future, is an important part. And so finally, I'm going to add one final thing, and that is um, we know that these periods are ones where we experience that moment where we begin to see the fissures in our economy. We see the fissures in our communities. Uh, they reveal the places where we have weakness in our businesses. And my encouragement, what I see happening in the calls I'm in, in the conversations I'm a part of, is numbers of businesses are using this time, as stressful as it is, to begin to reevaluate the strategies that they're using um, again, in their small local business. They're recognizing that business as usual won't be, business as usual won't be again. But they're also recognizing that that feeling they had before of not having the time to engage in strategy, to really sit down with the team, and the team could be a daughter and her father sitting across the table, really taking the time now to talk about what types of things might they reconsider that they've been doing and the ways that the present crisis gives us a moment to ask that question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot there with just those few analogies, risk versus uncertainty in the movie Jaws, 
Uh, the need for a bigger boat, the tension around closing the beaches, but also the idea that this time we're spending, which is so intimate, is a time when we can begin to look at ourselves and look across to the business that was our competitor in a different way. I'd love to take your questions. Wonderful, Greg. Thank you so much. Um, in just a moment, the operator will provide instructions and then connect a caller with Greg live on air. Please ask only one question, and when you begin, let us know your first name and your last name, your school and year of graduation, or your affiliation to UVA. Operator, please begin the question and answer session. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. When it is your time for a question, you will hear an audible prompt letting you know that your line is live. Again, for any questions, press star 1 now. We will take our first question. Caller, please go ahead. Hi, Greg. It's Matt Kness, starting 02. Oh, my goodness. Um, so for the rest of you on the phone, this is one of the great things about this job. Matt Kness is a student that I love, has embarrassed me, has kissed me, hugged me. And Matt, please tell me we're not going to bore everyone with how much we admire each other. Please tell me you've got some <laughs> questions for me. Yeah, Greg, listen, when I saw your name doing this, I had to join, and uh, I will bore everybody with my love and admiration for you, but um, yeah, I think for, for me, Greg, and I'll share a little context, I'm, I'm currently running Lucky Brand in LA. Uh, we are a uh, billion-plus uh, gross retail equivalent sales brand. That's widely distributed in retail. You touched on how important retail and consumer services are to the economy. My uh, question for you is how do you think um, leaders need to be thinking about retraining, um, redeploying talent in the wake of 22 million uh, unemployment filings that you referenced? And... Um, you know, is that something that in the work that you're doing, you feel like the government or public sector is going to be in a position to help with, or is it going to be left to private enterprise to, to drive you know, that, the, the, the solutions there? So, um, so my love for Matt notwithstanding, this is a great question. Uh, you know, um, the way I think about it is that this notion of the integration economy, the government, nonprofits, and I guess the for-profits, about this for a long time, and there's never been a moment like this for us to be reminded of how important it is that we recognize that what has seemed so separate perhaps isn't always. I, I would say to you that 
mini elements and stimulus package uh, surprised me in just how much the government has stepped in. But I think it's an understanding and a recognition of a reality about the importance of both sides or all three sides of the equation working together. I think the effort will be misfocused and how much of it will be labor fo laser focused. And I think since we're figuring it out as we go along, that's difficult. I also wonder how much ga gas will be in the tank. Some of the small business money, as some of us on the phone call know, has, has run out or is soon to be depleted. But let me answer another part of your question, because I've been in some conversations about the notion of retraining, the notion of re-engaging. You know, um, I think for the retail sector, so much of what we have recognized is that there were models and new models of operation that we saw coming. So the notion of what's called omni-channel had been on the horizon, this notion that there was a seamless interaction between the online environment and the in-store environment. We knew that there had been companies that had risen that had purely online models. We knew that there were um, ways that people were getting things delivered to them without ever having touched them, felt them, smelled them. Um, and, and that model was working. But we also knew the American consumer loved to touch, to walk, to spend time, to linger, and wanted advice. So, um, Matt, I think it's, it's, a, it's a nuanced thing. I think the idea of customer service is one that we will be thinking about um, in terms of how touching a consumer, perhaps initially in an online medium, can then translate over into building rapport and connection in a way that keeps the customer coming back. I think we'll also, Matt, come to some realizations that some of the technological platforms we have and haven't had may not be up to the task as quickly as we would like. So many people have flocked to Zoom, and Zoom is wonderful. We use it in, I use it in teaching. At the same time, um, we've learned that there's some things that Zoom has had to work out as it's providing this wonderful resource, and we're going to have to do the same thing across the pattern. I think that um, we may very well see some repositioning of a labor market. I I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there are people on this call who did go to the grocery store, as I did, um, three, four times a week because I love grocery stores and I love cooking. And so going to the grocery store and lingering and um, mingling and running into friends was a big part of something that was very, very powerful for me. But I'm going to dare say there are going to be some people that are going to be hesitant to return to the grocery aisle. And so figuring out how to do not either or but both is going to be a big part of what I think is going to need to happen. And it may mean that customers who were stocking shelves become very good about taking online orders. It may mean that the person behind the cheese counter who lets you taste cheese becomes really good about talking through and anticipating what types of cheeses you might like for that event uh, that you're doing with your family uh, and, and making um, 
She's fine, dude. That'll be a different world. So I'll pause there. And again, great to hear from you, Matt. Um, can we get another question? Thank you. We'll move on to our next question. Caller, please go ahead. Hey, Greg, this is Charles Mogulski, Darden 87. <clears throat> and and my, my preference, my question is going to be, you think uh, that this will happen and that this is uh, predicated by last recession. What we saw building up to it was the loss of manufacturing jobs and the transfer of labor into the housing market. And, of course, that crashed. And then we've got a big transfer into the services industry. And I'm observing that we're now doing everything online. I, I download an app. To not, I don't go to the bank. I deposit my checks. I buy a vacuum cleaner. It gets delivered. We're doing everything online, and we're liking it. All my kids are online for classes, so there'll be no more snow days uh, when the next winter comes online. And I'm seeing, my vision is, is that this penny's about to file bankruptcy, and a number will follow. They will never reopen. And at the same time, we've learned not to go shopping, but just get it. You know, I needed a vacuum cleaner. I called Best Buy. It was too expensive. I pointed them to the Costco website. They matched. They delivered. Boom, boom, boom. And I think that what this is doing is accelerating the online purchase and decreasing the labor. So the earlier question of retraining is spot on. And so when I said, do you think this will happen? So this is, will the government be forced to increase trade barriers or bring manufacturing back, drug manufacturing, ventilator manufacturing, uh, other high-tech stuff, because those workers are not going to be able to work in services and retail. So I'm going to say I'm going to take that one and say it's a both and. And I I would imagine that we realize that supply chains in this moment are as important as our platforms that allow us to connect electronically. So while it's wonderful that I can look at a vacuum I'd like to buy online, and you're so right, there are going to be some people who are not going to go into the vacuum store anymore. Um, but I'm also of the mind that what will still remain is somebody's got to then have a better way of getting the vacuum to the delivery system, which gets it to you, and if need be, gets it back from you, repairs it, and brings it back and gets you a very different vacuum. So all of those things that were capabilities that some companies had and others didn't, all of those are going to have to expand, and they're going to have to become very precision. And so the first part I would say to the yes and is there will likely be a shift which will match differences in consumer preferences. Um, you're also quite right that coming out of the last recession, we know that, for example, people who worked in manufacturing found it much, much harder to return to the job market. Um, in some cases, we found a gender split, that in a husband-wife family, some wives who were working in service industries went back to work sooner than their husbands, or, or perhaps never stopped working. I bring it up only to say we should anticipate some shifts that will also happen, and there will need to be a flexibility both on the part of the firm, on the customer, but also, yes, indeed, on the worker to do something he or she 
hadn't been doing the last 10 or 15 years. Relevant to the 22 million that are unemployed, I shall say, I think there'll be many people who will be willing to give any number of new opportunities a try. And the final thing I'll say is the degree to which technology can help us. I had the great benefit a few years ago of bringing a group of MBA students from Darden to the Amazon uh, fulfillment facility, where many of you have seen the videos or heard they're deployed robots. And while that's all true, the important part to know as well is that the deployed robots work side by side with people. And the either or that the person who was able to fill packages um, now does it with technological assist that makes that work far easier than it would have been just a few years ago. And so investments in making the remainder of the supply chain work quickly and work accurately will be a big part of what will be necessary. Thank you. We'll take our next question. Caller, please go ahead. Hi, this is uh, Paul Muir, uh, McIntyre class of 87, calling in from uh, San Diego and a current UVA parent as well. Uh, who's working from home, and my tuition dollars are still being spent because he's working hard every day. I'm glad to see. Uh, my question is is still going to the refer, or related to the most recent question regarding manufacturing. I guess part of this is a hopeful comment. You know, you've seen supply chain disruptions for many companies. We've obviously seen the issue of some of the specific medical supplies that we need not being available because they're not manufactured here in this country. Do you think going forward, there's going to be more, more of a, a willpower to bring back manufacturing to the U.S., you know, rebuild the middle class, more government um, support for that, uh, and companies, you know, repositioning their supply chains to do so? I guess I'm hopeful that it's not all done with technology. I, too, have seen the, the robots in the Amazon warehouses, et cetera, uh, and I hope that's not ultimately the approach. But do you think there's any chance here that the silver lining in all of this is rebuilding that uh, manufacturing and you know middle class here in our country? Thank you. So, Paul, first of all, um, give a shout out to your son. Um, I got a son who's also uh, a freshman at his college, and uh, he's upstairs taking classes, as I said earlier. So, I get it. Um, I understand and. Congratulations to the two of you um, for your involvement and continued involvement with UVA. Give him a hug for all of us. Now, to the specifics, I love this question. I love this question for two reasons. First of all, it, Paul, you, you brought back the part of the earlier question I missed. So you've helped me not look so much like I've overlooked what was already asked. So thank you for cleaning me up. Um, I absolutely, first of all, believe that the question of what we do around manufacturing capacity in the United States has been a question prior to this. And in some cases, what's left many people unhappy is a feeling that, well, you know, this feeling that they were hearing a motion that was manufacturing simply over. And I wouldn't want to have that message. We talk about retail. We talk about service and retail 
But let's keep in mind, again, 30% of the GDP is driven by manufacturing. And by the way, more of the workers work in those fields. So um, we absolutely know that scale through manufacturing produces immeasurable ways of providing middle-class growth. And in fact, it is that growth in the post-war period that makes and has made the United States the envy of so many. So let me first agree with you on the general notion. Now, the how we do it becomes an interesting one. You know, Paul, I agree as well that were we not to fix that part of this, we're going to continue to have problems restarting our engines. Um, it's interesting you've talked about, almost as we used to talk about some things in defense, by the way, you've talked about the necessity for us to have supply chains in manufacturing that were local and non-replicable. That is, that we could have them here and they would be available to us such that were something odd to happen, we would not be curtailed in our ability to bring those resources into the country. And this is in a moment where we see the reality of that, certainly around PPE and around other uh, elements that we really need. What I would say here is that that broader thinking about the importance both at an economic level, but also in thinking strategically about the resources that are needed in certain areas and making sure that those chains have become and remain available is important. I think there are discussions going on now about um, the degree to which the interrelation of our global set of markets and economies we know that in the last recession, there was a cascade both within countries and across countries. And we also know that now we're experiencing places where um, we have reasons why individual countries may want to hold on to certain things. So my answer to you and to this question is, I think we're at a moment where this tone, this tonal quality of us all being together um, will involve those types of questions. But now let's come back to that idea of the government, nonprofits, and businesses themselves. Um, I think that getting really smart about training and the way that training can enable us to have the sorts of uh, staff that we need and that will continue to be able to provide things that perhaps we haven't provided here in this country for some time. I think that'll be important. I think it'll also be important for us to think of how organizations that are nonprofits might help us build capacity through, we in the United States have the wonderful benefit of a charitable enterprise that doesn't exist in, uh, in many other countries. And our nonprofit sector, many of it has been involved in community development in various ways, could very well be a key instrument in providing ways that dollars can be targeted to help build capacity for manufacturing workers or manufacturing firms. Um, you know, I will say that, let me give a small shout out. There are, um, I've been a privy to emails and traffic about initiatives going on, some even involving UVA itself and our alums to help provide capital to businesses that need it. And some of this is philanthropic capital and some of this isn't. But these types of um, approaches, the recognition that our banks can put liquidity into the system, 
liquidity can help, but we're also going to need some other things, and we're going to need to be thoughtful about it, is ways that we can have a multi-sector strategy. But, but to do that, we need a type of leadership that is facile with multiple sectors and comfortable talking across sectors. And to be quite candid, we have so seldom had that logic that I'm not always sure that we're there. It's a wonderful question, and thanks for cleaning me up, Paul. Thank you. We will move on to our next question. Caller, please go ahead. Hi, um, I'm Wendy Librand. I'm a 1998 graduate of the Curry School. I'm a speech pathologist, so a little bit different than the previous callers. But um, I work for a contracting company that we have speech pathologists in face-to-face -face settings throughout the state of New Hampshire. And um, my question is more about how do you expect technology to grow in the health and human services sector, in essence, especially things like speech pathology where you're focused on talking directly with the person um, after this time period? So um, I love this question, too. Let me, let me make a personal shout-out. Um, so my daughter, my eldest child is 21 years old. Her name is Naya. Um, my wife and I, also a Curry grad, I should call out, a Darden and a Curry grad she is. Um, our first, we learned that our first child would have Down syndrome. And in fact, she does, and she's 21 years old. And um, in the end, she graduated from high school with a regular diploma in the state of Virginia. But the important part of this is there were people like you, speech pathologists, and uh, special ed instructors and occupational therapists, people like you who made our lives wonderful. And so well, thank you. not only, well, I just, this is a commercial. I love you people. My daughter and my family forever will be thankful to you. So, um, so I know a little bit also about what you do because I've lived it. Um, let, me, let me say that there will be many things that we do that are so reliant on the personal interaction and our ability to see, to touch, to listen, um, and interact with someone in the fullness that is them, and it's so hard to do that through a screen. Um, I think there'll be challenges we will have about um, something like what you've done, which means you're dealing with people who learn and achieve and, at different rates. And the ability to be very specifically involved is important. Um, that being said, I think that um, this echoes a little bit of what I said earlier. I don't think we'll end up in an either or. I think it'll be a both and. And my hope is that um, someone who does what you do and your colleagues do, I, I don't know if you're in you know, what I'll call New Hampshire, which is, uh, which is a suburb of Boston, or if you're up in the White Mountains. <laughs> well, the, the company I work for, I'm in charge of the telepractice line of business. And um, uh -huh. but previous, to this, previous to this event, we did not have a telepractice line of business. So we're in almost every county or part of New Hampshire. I actually live in Massachusetts. <laughs> So this is wonderful because it, what, what it shows is that 
Um, the technology can give, and I think this is where you're where you're heading. The technology can give us scale. It can give us reach. It can allow us to operate um, asynchronously outside of real time. But what I don't think it can do is I don't think it's as good about um, making the personal connection or we have to be incredibly diligent, thoughtful, and explicit about it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep you for a second because I'm going to say the other part of the challenge, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this, is it's one thing to have the technology. It's also another thing to work with a team and collaborate across distance and time. And I think what I'm learning in talking with people is that some of the biggest learning is in how do you manage and how do you reward and how do you encourage and how do you create camaraderie with people who you don't see every day? And I, I'm going to put you on the spot. This is a Darden cold call. Um, do, you, <laughs> do you have any advice for us about that? Um, what's been your oh, well, experience? I do have some advice about that. So I work remotely all the time. The company is based in Laconia, New Hampshire, and I'm outside of Boston. Um, the best thing to do is to use video. So this kind of calling is great. I know we're a large group, and this. But if you if you use video, there's research that supports that people do feel the connection, even though you're not physically present. Um, the second thing I'll say is when you're quickly implementing a telepractice sort of situation, having the tools organized and kind of open in the background of your call is the other trick to that. Um, and then eventually, we currently use Zoom as our platform. Eventually, the Zoom will catch up with um, what's needed for education. I mean, I, I know that they weren't designed as an educational tool, but things like reactions um, are really important. And Zoom doesn't, it only has two positive reactions. I, I called and told the tech people is like, you guys need some negative reactions. <laughs> you can't have just clapping and just clapping in a thumbs up. It's not always what it is. Um, so those, the, the stressful things about it is, is the amount of sitting that you end up doing. So the, the biggest stressor of transitioning for most of the speech pathologists I work, work for is that they don't move around. Um, yeah, I that can imagine that because so yeah, much of what they did before was in person and was mm -hmm. involving moving around. I, I absolutely. Well, and, and, and you and, know, I guess, I guess, I guess the one other thing I'd say here is, you know, what you're pointing out is the importance of recognizing the technology. This relates to some other things. Can't do it all. I've been listening to people talk about ways that they um, have challenges, they, they, how to monitor what employees are doing, how to coach them in a positive way, and how to give them potentially challenging feedback in a negative way. And <laughs> these are all new, new practices for all of us. Um, mm -hmm. And to do so without people having the fear that they're about to get fired. And so um, these are big questions, and I think any advice you or anybody else has for how to do that better, how to manage better a diverse team from afar, 
is one of the capacities we're going to really need. I want, I want to let one more question in, and then I think I'm supposed to be pivoting. Do I have time for one more question? Yes, you do. Okay, we'll take our next question. Caller, please go ahead. Hi there. Um, my name is Laura Allen, and I own a little company in Charlottesville called Allen Scottish Shortbread. And my husband and I met at UVA um, College of Arts and Science, Class of Six. And, and it's very much a mom and market. pop operation. <laughs> what? And you, and, and, and you sell at the farmer's market. And I know you're well, shortbread. <laughs> you do. We started out at the farmer's market six years ago. And now our retailers are um, the Holman Atlantic for Whole Foods and QVC. We got to do QVC this year. And um, we're dipping our toes in Amazon, but those are the big corporate ones. And thank you for knowing us. That's exciting. But we um, are the ultimate mom and pop story. And so we've been watching all these sweet little stores that are these gorgeous gourmet stores throughout the suburbs of D.C. closing shop one by one. And so we'd be so excited that we get the new account. And then, you know, 15 months later, they're not there anymore. And so we've been knowing that we needed to take e-commerce seriously. It's just that because we are playing all the parts all the time, still, we're just kind of just sort of stepping out of startup and into legitimate cash flow. It is our life work. Like, we're devoted to doing this indefinitely. Um, but we have been knowing that we need to take e-commerce seriously. It's just that time was very much not on our side. And now it is. <laughs> and so we're just looking to invest in what is like, if, I mean, we are still very small. So if we had like $2,000 to devote to e-commerce, does anyone have any recommendations on the wisest place to put what are, it sounds like pennies to a lot of the callers. This has been the best phone call to sit in on. Um, I have to tell you, I've so enjoyed listening. <laughs> and anyway, if anyone has any advice because you've all been doing this longer, that would help us so much because we're really able to work on that right now. So I'm going to take my prerogative and I'm going to ask that given the number of listeners we have, there, my understanding before we got started is there were 950 people um, so I'm going to guess there are at least 175 that would love to respond to you. And I'm going to ask my colleagues online, Elizabeth and others, to help us figure out how to capture that for you. Um, that all being said, I think your question is one that many people on the call, they're wondering where to put the pennies right now. Um, the great part of your story is that you've got an established business, you've got an established base. It sounds like your um You've got a stock. You've got a stock of a good product, but you've also got a little bit of a stock in that you've been keeping and marshalling your resources. And so, first of all, that's a wonderful place to be in. Second of all, you're also experiencing something else that I was referring to. That is, um, some of the you're the supplier to some of these specialty gourmet shops, and they're having a hard time. And that could be the place where you have your biggest problem. I might also say. This, again, might be the time when specialty shops who before were serving a certain footprint and a certain group of people um, could serve together 
and that will help you continue to be in business and could help them continue to be in business. Because the people who are coming in and buying your shortbread in their specialty shop are still out there wanting shortbread. In fact, at a time like now, they might even want more shortbread. And so thinking collectively, you meeting and talking with those retailers on how to continue to feed them or how they can continue to work together might be the type of conversation I want to encourage. Again, I think the idea that there are people that can help you with your technological question are, are here and available. I think as you do that, though, let me encourage that this it's not going to be an either-or proposition is one of the things that I want to make sure you keep in mind. You're still going to want to touch and feel people. And I can, again, attest to meeting uh, probably you and your husband uh, at the farmer's market. And so that still matters. People still want to do business. People still want to do business with people. That's still going to matter. Um, and so I just want to encourage that. And then the only other thing I want to say is, and let me reiterate this again, um, there is the government stimulus package, but there are also local initiatives. And I would encourage you guys to look around at some of the things going on at UVA uh, as an institution through our Office of Economic Development, through the state offices of economic development. I encourage people to focus on organizations like some of the um, some of the angel investing groups, some other types of funds that are out there. Cav Angels is one of these that is focused on UVA alumni. There are lots of places to go because there are lots of those of us who realize what a key moment this is. So, um, so I love, shout out to you and your family. I, we love uh, your stuff, and I'm glad to hear you're there, but realize you're just a part of this larger continuum. Now, I'm looking at my time, and I think I have five minutes, and so I'm going to turn it back over to my host. Um, but let me, before I do that, there's three things I want to say. First of all, for all of you that came on, thank you. And for those of you I didn't get a chance to spend a couple minutes with in real time, I so appreciate you, and I want you to know uh, that we're here, you're there, but we're all together. Um, I want to thank UVA for even asking me to do this. I felt so in the basement, so to speak. And so it's great that UVA did this for me. I feel very touched. Um, I third want to remind everyone that another thing I've been mentioning is the recognition of a larger sector type of activity, multiple sectors. And my colleague, Christine Mahoney, is going to be on. I think it's next week. Elizabeth will confirm with you. And she's going to be talking about the way that social entrepreneurs, grant-making institutions can do their part in this moment as well. Um, to all the small business owners out there, keep doing what you're doing. We need you. You are the backbone of our economy. To all those who support the small businesses, the lenders, the technology providers, help these businesses find the fuel and resources they need to do what they do better. And uh, for those of us that are on the phone that are educators or people that are a part of that greater chain of providing information, people right now need opportunities to uh, sit back, to reflect, and advice can be something more valuable than something you write a check for. Elizabeth, should I turn it back over to you? 
That sounds great, Greg. Thank you so much. What a wonderful way to to bring the the call to closure and to to go back to what you just said. We will make sure that we connect you um, with Laura so that you guys can continue that wonderful conversation about the shortbread. I have had it. It's absolutely amazing. So to all those who participated today, thank you so much. Do watch for an email invitation to next week's edition of On Air with UVA. As Greg said, Christine Mahoney from the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy is going to join us. You can also find more information about the program on UVA Club's alumni and friends webpage.